All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. I'm your host, Rafael. Grateful as always to each and every one of you for tuning in and supporting the show. We've talked a lot about the important topic of foreign intervention in Venezuela, broadly discussing the roles of the allies of the regime of Nicolas Maduro. But we have yet to cast the spotlight on the elephant in the room, or the dragon in the room, I should say. In the last two decades, China has become the most important economic partner of the Venezuelan government. The relationship between Venezuela, the country with the world's largest proven oil reserves, and China, the world's largest oil importer, is as fascinating as it is complex. At one point, Venezuela was the largest recipient of Chinese loans in the whole world. While these loans have long since dried up and Venezuela still owes China tens of billions of dollars, China remains a pivotal political and economic lifeline for the Maduro regime, importing Venezuelan oil in spite of U.S. sanctions and generally providing quiet but crucial diplomatic support on the international stage. Suffice to say that China's stakes are too high for us not to single out. So in this episode, we're going to be discussing the China-Venezuela relationship. To help us break it all down, we're lucky to be joined today by Parsifal de Sola Alvarado. Parsifal is the co-founder of the Andres Bello China Latin America Research Foundation, and he's worked as a foreign policy advisor to the interim government of Juan Guaido. If there's anyone who knows the ins and outs of the China-Venezuela relationship, it is you, Parsifal. So welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast. Thank you, Rafael, and, and thank you for that generous introduction. Uh, my pleasure. No problem. Thank you so much for being here. Like I mentioned, you know China pretty well. Your academic background, I believe, is in East Asian studies, and you've lived in China for several years, right? Uh, yes. Well, it's kind of a funny story. I'm actually a telecommunications engineer uh, who, well, for reasons that I won't, won't get a... a into here. I ended up in China uh, in 2008, just prior to the Olympics, and I ended up staying there till late 2015, early 2016. So yeah, well, being there, a lot of changes, and uh, that led me to eventually focus, pursue uh, uh, studies in, uh, well, East Asian studies, particularly Chinese studies. So I got involved in uh, well, topics related to politics, it's economics, it's uh, reform era. And uh, uh, yeah, it became my, uh, uh, not to sound cliche, but well, my, my, my passion uh, in life. And it's a passion worth having because I believe China is Latin America's largest economic partner, correct? Um, overall, it's still the US, but China is it's right up there and in, in the second place. In some countries, it has become the first partner. Uh, namely Argentina, which is uh, quite noteworthy given the fact that it has uh, this huge neighbor next door. Well, Venezuela, of course. And um, if I'm not mistaken, even Chile, uh, that might be uh, uh, really out there the same with, with the United States. But yes, overall, it's a huge and important economic partner. Yes, and that's something that we're definitely going to get into. And before we do, I want to know a little bit more about this institution, this think tank that you're involved with or that you helped create, which is the Andres Bello China Latin America Research Foundation. Talk to us a little bit about that, if you could, because it's worth highlighting that China's growing presence in the region is such that, well, now there's a think tank uniquely focused on it. Uh, sure thing. So I had the idea to set up something of the sorts, uh, be it a research institution, 
uh, or something like it from a few years back, namely because there wasn't any. Uh, you do have, uh, obviously, academics, Latin American academics, and uh, that work on China, Latin America, or China and their country of focus uh, relation. But there isn't an organization dedicated to the study of and uh, the importance of, of, of China's participation in the, in the region. There's a lot of, of, of talk about it. There's a lot of speculation. Uh, usually people tend to be guided by the headlines in favor or against. Uh, there, there's, uh, well, people all over the spectrum when, when regarding China. But yes, there, there, there wasn't any. So I had this, this idea in my head from a few years back. And eventually, well, 2019 uh, comes around, uh, Huang Guaido happens. And uh, well, yeah, it, it was uh, the opportunity presented itself to set up uh, an institution given, well, given my personal background and, and personal interest in, in Venezuela, and uh, having studied the relationship for over a decade now, it seemed like the perfect opportunity to uh, set up the kind of organization that would do research on the topic and bring that to light and use all that information to compare well, what happened in Venezuela to other, uh, well, what China is doing in other parts of the region. So that's more or less where it stems from. And well, eventually I got a group together and we, we even though much, most of the work that we've done so far has been on Venezuela, uh, we, we have a, a, a couple of important projects down the pipeline uh, that will be more of, will have more of a regional focus. And well, the end goal being to get people involved in the conversation, to have a, a critical a discussion uh, that you know, uh, makes the best of what uh, information we have available, but also to lend itself as a platform for people that are studying their relationship and to get their voices out there. That's really great, Parsifal. I think that it's really pivotal for us to continue to study this relationship as a whole as China continues to nestle itself into a region that it considers to be a natural extension of the Belt and Road Initiative. Specifically, as we speak about the relationship between China and Venezuela, though, let's switch and lay the foundation for this relationship, because I think it'll help a lot for the listeners if we put it in historical context. It seems to have really started under former President Hugo Chavez in the early 2000s, when Venezuela became the first country in Latin America to enter into what we would call a strategic development partnership with China. So talk to us about that, if you could. What led Chavez to pivot to China after being elected president of Venezuela back in 1999? Okay, well, uh, so let's see how, how I summarize this. Um, so yes, it, it's, it's right, uh, as you mentioned, the Sino-Venezuelan link began to strengthen under Hugo Chavez, even though Venezuela was among the first countries in the region to switch recognition from uh, Taipei to Beijing uh, back in the late, uh, no, mid-70s. The, the two countries did have a, 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 an established relationship, much like every other, most other countries in the region. But, uh, well, come 1999, Hugo Chavez comes to power and... Uh, Without getting into what the end goal of the, the, the Chavez foreign policy objectives were, um, right after the, uh, the military coup in 2002, Chavez had radicalized his, his position vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the international system. So uh, probably stemming from the vulnerabilities from, from his perspective, from or from his administration's perspective, given the strong relationship, strong linkage with the United States, with Western institutions, uh, that uh, he pivoted to other countries in a way to help him counterbalance the, the huge influence uh, that the U.S. had inside of Venezuela and uh, but particularly to into his domestic politics so 
all these institutions, all these multilateral organizations were in a, in a way obstructive to his power grab. So when you bring into the Latin American discourse, political discourse, other extraterritorial players like Iran, like Russia, like China, it makes it, it's not so much uh, a way to challenge directly the U.S. It is more to make it more, uh, uh, more difficult for the U.S. to operate freely or to engage with partners in the region. So th this is what in, in, uh, in uh, political science is called self-balancing. So it, it, it was a way for Chavez, stemming from his domestic power grab, it was a way to uh, gain some leeway in terms of what he was doing at home and what he was trying to do in the region, supporting other leftist governments, primarily through this whole anti-U.S. rhetoric, uh, and it's obviously its close relationship with Cuba. So bringing China on board this new, like, rising power, remember to situate ourselves in the beginnings of the 2000s, China was was just being incorporated in the WTO. Its uh, percentage of world GDP wasn't as high as it was today. So um, this was a transition that uh, where we can couple Chavez's power grab with a new international player that was seeking to make a name for itself and to, well, seeking new markets, new economic links with uh, regions outside its sphere of influence. So it's when these two things come together that we see this surge in Sino-Venezuelan relations. So it seems like on the one hand, or at least under Hugo Chavez, it was a lot more ideologically motivated given how much he was touting Maoism, the fact that he seemed to really identify himself with, I guess, the, the, the Marxism-Leninism of the CCP. On the other side, though, it seems like for Beijing, it was more of a commercial motivation or an economic motivation to sit themselves at the other side of the table. Would that be correct? So um, I, I have a problem with the ideological argument it, because, well, obviously th this depends. We would have to dig into, you know, the, the motives are, and the uh, foundations of Chavez's foreign policy. That being said, I think that was more uh, rhetoric than actual policy. Uh, it was it was a way to attract China, so that that's why I, I, I make an, uh, an emphasis on uh, on the rhetoric argument. Because, um, well, uh, you probably or and, and your audience is very well of this. This, this was more of a, um, this had more to do with a power grab inside of Venezuela than particularly an ideological movement of sorts. It was just the narrative used to um, to justify uh, his domestic policies. So it, it was a way to catch China's eye. If you have this vocal leader on the other side of the planet uh, touting Maoism, touting multilateralism, touting anti-imperial rhetoric, it was like the perfect uh, hook to get the, the uh, Chinese attention. So uh, obviously there's there's a lot of like uh, ideological uh, uh, painting around the narrative, but I think it was more of an intelligent, practical move from uh, Chavez himself and, and his, his foreign policy group uh, to capture Chinese attention uh, and uh, talking about China-Latin America relations to focus mostly on Venezuela. And, and when we talk about the Chinese side, initially, yeah, I, I completely agree. It was an economic uh, interest, uh, primarily in, in the energy sector, Venezuela, you know, having the, the oil reserves it has, and especially was in the sphere of influence of the, uh, of the U.S. So China, historically speaking, its links with, with Latin America in general, with the exception of Cuba, have been very... Um, they've been established for over, well, at the time for like three, four decades, more or less, uh, but re they, they remain really superficial. So this was an opportunity to engage directly with the head of state, uh, a, a country with the largest oil reserves uh, in the planet. It was a way to diversify their energy sources. So yes, you could say it was 
um, its signatures was mainly economic and uh, particularly in the res- in the energy sector. Sure. As early as the agreements that were signed in, I believe it was 2004, right? Where essentially both of the countries were able to make investments without having to pay taxes to the treasury of the other country. So um, talk to us, if you could, about that being the first real sign of economic cooperation between the countries that led to over a billion dollars in direct investment from China to Venezuela, more than I think any other Latin American country at that point. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that was just the beginning, uh, uh, as you mentioned earlier. So, two thousand and four, uh, I would say, yeah, two thousand and four, two thousand and five was the where where everything took off. And and if you situate yourselves at the time, this was there was there was a moment where the United States states was bogged down in the Middle East. Uh, it was highly disengaged from the region. And it was exactly at the time when when China was starting to hit the headlines. So it's economic prowess. It was, uh, even though we're talking about the, the so-called Chinese miracle from the uh, 1980s and 90s, that narrative hadn't reached the region uh, in a mainstream kind of way. Uh, going back to what I was saying, so... Uh, a disengaged United States, a growing uh, uh, economic uh, weight of China inter- in the international system, and you have a well, which was what buttressed all of Chavez's foreign policy, which was the the boom in oil prices. This was like the perfect setting from both the Venezuelan side and the Chinese side. From the Venezuelan side, it was uh, it was the the perfect a perfect chance to start diversifying from its dependence from the United States in terms of the U.S. historically being the, the most important uh, economic partner of Venezuela, uh, accounting for, I, I don't remember the numbers of the moment, but at least 60 to 70 percent of Venezuela's oil ended up in, in the United States at the time. So, yes, this was a time where, you know, you, you're seeing this huge influx of money into Venezuela. You're seeing China uh, invest in energy and infrastructure uh, projects all around the globe, which was basically the precursor of the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, Xi Jinping simply uh, renamed it, rebranded it. It, it, This has actually been going on for at least two decades now. So, yes, it was... uh, it was perfect. Uh, it, this also worked in Chavez's favor because he was promoting all these. Well, it was the initial movements to create an uh, ALBA. To, uh, there, there was a lot of talk about the strengthening of uh, Mercosur. So Chavez was incorporating China into his multilateral view of the world, which was what he was promoting at the time. Uh, with an increasing fashion in regional fora. It also seemed to be the precursor to other agreements that were signed by China and Venezuela. The most significant one, I think, of the 2000s, which uh, I'd love to get your perspective from, um, the Venezuela-China Joint Fund that was created by Hugo Chavez, I believe in 2008, 2007. and. And it allowed Venezuela to receive loans from China in tranches of up to $5 billion and to pay them with shipments of oil. And this led to a series of, well, of other ventures and other problems, let's say. So um, talk to us a little bit about that joint fund, if you could. Mm, sure. So, yeah, it, it, was, it was first established in 2007. Overall, the Sino-Venezuelan Joint Fund accumulated over close to $50 billion beginning in 2007. And, uh, well, the last, uh, the last payment uh, or the last loan from, from the China Development Bank was made in 2015, if I'm not mistaken. So in, in, that, in, in a span of over eight years, this was the main vehicle for cooperation between the two countries. This kind of of uh, joint fund is not particular to Venezuela, and actually, it was uh, it was a the the, mo- the the modus operandi that it used 
throughout the global south to get access to a sustained flow of natural resources. In Venezuela's case, obviously, it was oil. So going to the, the specifics, so the, the joint fund was created between what uh, the, national, the Venezuelan National Development Bank, BANDES, which was also created by Chavez, with the explicit purpose of participating in the Sino-Venezuelan Joint Fund. On the Chinese side, the most important player was the China Development Bank, which is China's most important policy bank in terms of its lending power overseas. Mm-hmm. So uh, it is, there, there were some funds initially for when the, when the fund was created, there were some uh, uh, part of the funds were put on, were put forward by Bandes, uh, and uh, it was 40%, 60% at the time, and it was $20 billion. So it was $8 billion by Bandes and $12 billion by the China Development Bank. And, and this served as the uh, uh, the platform for everything that followed. So all the, the infrastructure projects, all the uh, well, the, the cooperation in terms of setting up factories in Venezuela from Chinese manufacturers. We're talking about the cooperation in terms of uh, military equipment. So everything stemmed from this uh, this joint fund. So in total, Parsifal, how much money was actually loaned to Venezuela? I, I don't remember the exact figure. I've read somewhere between 50 billion, 60 billion. But what I do know, if I'm not mistaken, is that for the entire region, it accounted for more than more than half of the the total amount of loans that was actually given to the region. Right. Uh, yes, 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 that's that's uh, that's correct. Depending on the time frame, but if, if, if you situate yourself from between 2005 and 2015, Venezuela accounted for, uh, I think it's 52, 53% of the entire Chinese loan portfolio in the region. It's unprecedented in so many levels. It's, it's not only talking about China-Latin America relations, we're talking about, or, or China-Venezuela relations, we're talking about this new player in, in global politics and represented in China, just suddenly uh, overcoming everything that multilateral institutions were, were, were doing at the time, like the IMF, the World Bank, or other multilateral uh, banking institutions. So uh, th- this was disruptive in, in uh, the specific sense of the word. It was um, it represented something that couldn't be explained at the time. So why would China just simply dive in the way it did? Uh, and this this was perfect for Chavez's own political ambition, both uh, at a domestic level as well as an international one, because he could use this basically as a uh, an example of what a cooperation with China would mean for the developing world. It's important for listeners to really grasp that point that Venezuela was the recipient of more than half of the amount of money and loans that was provided by China within that time frame. So again, this just goes to show how important strategically Venezuela has been for China in again, nestling its presence in the region. We're talking, again, tens of billions of dollars. However, in spite of this, a lot of the projects that were created through the money from that joint fund, uh, as you know, Parsifal, did not pan out. Talk to us, if you could, maybe about some of the problems that came with that money, because it seems like a lot of the money went nowhere or at least that's what the infrastructure projects in general have to show for it. Yeah, uh, did not pan out. Uh, it's definitely an understatement. Uh, it, it was it was a complete fiasco. It's it's incredible that uh, you you asked me before the amount of money. The amount of loans registered uh, is sixty two billion dollars, and that's it's it's important to point out because usually uh, when uh, you see uh, either politicians or sometimes even academics talking about uh, Chinese loans to Venezuela, they term to phrase them as investment. 
And it, it's very important to point out, to highlight that there was very, very little investment in Venezuela. There were loan agreements. There, were, there wasn't investment. By far, the largest investment destination of China in the region was Brazil, and I think it continues to be to this day. But yeah, it's it's, it's important to to differentiate what was uh, be, between loans and investment, taking into account that you know the level of importance demonstrated by the loans assigned to Venezuela. Having mentioned that, why, why do I say it was a fiasco? Well, you, you just got to look at uh, uh, the re, the tangible assets that were left over 15 years of close relations and of uh, vast loans. There isn't one large infrastructure project finished in Venezuela funded by the Sino-Venezuelan Joint Fund. There isn't one. It's one of the many examples uh, that talks about the high levels of corruption that were that surrounded the use of these funds. The breaking point, at least towards the public came, I would say, into the, right before uh, Chavez's last election in 2011, uh, when there was a, a, well, it was cataloged as a leak. I, I wouldn't be so sure, but that's only speculation for my part. Uh, from the Chinese embassy in Caracas, where, when they were publicly, uh, there was a discussion between uh, Chinese officials where they were criticizing the, the Chavez administration for $8 billion from the Sino-Venezuelan Joint Fund that apparently just, you know, vanished. Uh, they, they were asking for, well, basically accountability of uh, about the funds, where they ended up, how, and uh, no one really knows exactly what went on behind uh, closed doors. But the fact that this information was, it even came out to the public that there was a, a, uh, yeah, well, basically a clash over how the money was being spent tells you uh, that this relationship hasn't been going go- going on well for a while. And uh, according to people that were not directly involved in managing the fund, but this, this okay, let me clarify, these are mostly anecdotes, but uh, from people that worked inside the government, uh, that uh, they speculated that most of that money was basically used for Chavez's last campaign. So there was probably a lot of money ended up in all of the social programs that Chavez boosted just you know months before his election. So that more or less gives you an idea of where the money might have ended up. Um, there is no study or no investigation to date about how this money was spent. Uh, basically because this was uh, all the classes, all these contracts were were uh, highly classified. So other than leaks and uh, anecdotes from people that might have been related to some of these projects, we have no solid evidence in regards to where this money actually ended up. Some of it ended up in the bank accounts of some of the individuals that were involved in Europe. Without going too much into detail, I know that there was a an investigation in Andorra that implicated certain members of uh, the government and employees of PDVSA who essentially pillaged the uh, the coffers of the of the loan structure, the money that was supposed to come from those loans, and some of them have been arrested and and I think have been tried on charges of money laundering, but. It just goes to show how much corruption was really rampant in the money that was being loaned to Venezuela. A great example, actually, is that agreement that Venezuela and China signed for that railway line that never went anywhere, right? I think they maybe did like maybe one little bit of construction in it. But uh, talk to us a little bit about that, because that's one of the best examples of that money essentially going nowhere in terms of project completion. There, there's two projects that perfectly exemplify the levels of corruption. That is one of them. Definitely the one that caught the eye of, of, of foreign journalists. Uh, and yes, it was supposed to be the first high-speed railway of the continent. Well, another continent, of, of Latin America. So uh, approximately $1.2 billion were assigned 
to this project. And the only thing that actually got built were the the concrete structure of two stations. Not not even one kilometer of rail was, was uh, laid out. So what what happened to those one point two billion dollars? No, no one has a clue. Um, and, and it's actually funny you men- mentioned the Andorra case because uh, yeah, the, the Chinese, no, the Venezuelan ambassador for China for for over a decade uh, was involved in the, that whole scandal in Andorra, and she's actually. Uh, I can't remember her, her name. You, you should look it up. Um, she's right now the representative for the uh, Maduro regime in um, in the UK. What really? Yeah. <laughs> so look, look her up. Look, look, look up her name. Uh, it's it's definitely worth it. If if we if we had more time, I would go into a bunch of stories that happened in the Venezuelan embassy in uh, in Beijing that involved her. Uh, but uh, going back to the examples of Chinese failed projects in Venezuela. The the railway was one of them, but I think an even more important one is uh, the one of the Santa Ines refinery that was supposed to be built in, obviously, Santa Ines, Chavez's hometown. Um, And this, this was a project that goes back all the way to 2005. So they were supposed to do a, build a refinery there, uh, which didn't didn't make much sense since they would have to build pipelines uh, all the way to the the oil fields where where the the oil was going to come from. So, so it was basically a symbolic project to, to you know that speaks about you know Chavez's whole. Uh, yeah, his whole political narrative about where he comes from and his origins and the importance of of the Venezuelan interstates. So the the thing is, they they actually started building the project. No one really knows how much money they eventually assigned to it, or how much was earmarked for this project. But the first trench was about seven hundred million dollars, and this was used to buy uh, a lot of high scale industrial equipment that was going to be used uh, to build this this refinery. Uh, well, it turns out that given the size of the of the machinery, it couldn't be transported through uh, uh, by land. So they had this brilliant idea to bring all the equipment through the delta uh, in the, in the state of Delta Macuro, and then. They actually brought, they, they bought all the equipment, obviously from a uh, from a Chinese uh, uh, manufacturer, and the equipment made it all the way to the delta, and uh, well, it basically got stuck. This was um, you, you, if you can help me out with this. This was the the year where there was a large drought that lasted for a couple of uh, for a few months, and that was when the whole uh, water crisis started in Venezuela. And that uh, was still alive. So, yeah, it basically got stuck there for over a year and a half. We're talking about $700 million simply stuck in the Delta and the, the, the east side of the country. And it was completely dismantled. It was, there was no accountability whatsoever. And obviously, the project never never even got off its feet. So, yes, you have those two uh, large-scale products that are a perfect example of uh, of how... Uh, the Sino-Venezuelan Joint Fund ended up. That's unbelievable. It shows how little has panned out from the loans, the insane amount of loans that were given by China. But just a random question that just occurred to me. To what extent do you think that China could predict that things would pan out this way? I can't imagine them really thinking that they would loan this much money and it would go to so little. I think that speaks a lot about China's knowledge about Latin America and, well, frankly speaking, about Venezuelan politics. Uh, and they, they definitely have a problem in their risk analysis. I think that they've learned a lot along the way, but uh, I, re- I doubt a lot that they could even... Not, not even predict. It's just to imagine the the level of corruption that that would follow the the, the side. The, well, the projects, the side of Venezuelan 
joint fund. And basically all the, the projects that China wanted, they, they sincerely did want to uh, make Venezuela a uh, an exemplar of what Chinese engagement or engagement with China would bring about for the global south, and uh, it ended up, uh, you know, the complete opposite. So, yeah, th- it, it speaks first to a problem in their risk and political risk analysis, economic risk analysis, and uh, it uh, it also I think it also has to do with the fact that. The so-called non-interventionist policy, which, well, without getting into too much detail, it's um, not getting involved or, or not paying too much attention of what is going on at the domestic level, which is actually a big part of the problem. Because if, if they had actually done just a little bit of research, uh, they might have, uh, let's say, they might have been a little bit more cautious in terms of you know, the, the oversight of the money and uh, being, uh, well, being more present inside of Venezuela and then actually, uh, you know, keeping track of everything that was going on. I think the numbers also show how they've tried to take more of a cautious approach and not make the same mistake after they realized just how many corrupt officials from uh, PDVSA and just from the Chavez administration, from the Maduro regime, all of them motivated really to pillage, again, the coffers of the economy and of the money that was supposed to be allocated to these projects. Whereas Venezuela received 64% of China's loans to Latin America in 2012, just to show a comparison, by 2016, it only received 10% and almost no direct Chinese investment. So it shows that they definitely learned their lesson. At the same time, China has remained active in other sectors, namely in the mining sector. I think it was back in 2017 that both countries signed an agreement for other mining activities. So what exactly is the uh, the motive for China being invested in that particular part of the economy? So, well, talking from the Chinese perspective, uh, Venezuela has, uh, again, one of the, 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 the largest reserves of rare earths outside of outside of China and the United States. So uh, this is a big contributor to the technologies of the future. So, so we're talking about, well, microchip development, all the, everything that has to do with, uh, well, 5G, uh, artificial intelligence. So the, the raw materials for the development of these kinds of technologies, uh, well, Venezuela has a vast amount of them. So I think that's the main um, the main interest that China might have, that China has in uh, Venezuela's mining sector. That being said, uh, well, uh, just a, a small parenthesis. In 2017, actually, that agreement you're, you're referring to comes uh, because of uh, Maduro's intent on creating these special economic zones in order to attract primarily Chinese involvement, but also Russian and Turkish and from Iran as well. So these special economic zones are basically safe havens for anyone who is involved in it. Because uh, according to Venezuelan law, from the presidential decree that created these special economic zones, according to it, the, the companies that participate in them are do not have to uh, make the information public. So no one really knows which companies are operating there, to what extent, what they are extracting. And this, this, was, this was a political move from uh, Maduro, given that well, uh, it's uh, huge economic problems that they're, that they're well, you know better than anyone that you know stand back more than a decade. So this was a way to get non-traditional partners involved in Venezuela's mining economy. So that was, that's where all of the Chinese participation stems from. So given that it is anonymous and we we really don't have any like official sources to corroborate that they are participating. We do know for a fact because there are Chinese workers, there are reports from Chinese workers uh, in the Arco Minero in Venezuela, but no one really knows which companies are involved. So 
it's hard to know to what extent they're, they're, they're actually participating. We just know that they are there and odds are that they are not going anywhere. It's really important that we discuss in the future, which we will, the Orinoco mining arc, because on the surface, it seems like it's a uh, it's a net positive for development and promotion. But what's really going on over there, as you know, Parsifal, is we can only describe it as ecocide. It is the site of illegal gold mining by the regime. This area is, as you say, rich in all sorts of minerals like gold, iron, bauxite, diamond, copper, titanium, coltan, which uh, we'll be discussing in a second. But all of these minerals are being extracted by the regime and by these different entities. I've heard uh, workers from China, workers from Turkey... And to give you guys an idea of how large this place is, it's at least 111,800 square kilometers. So that comes out to about roughly 43,166 square miles. That is larger than the U.S. states of Tennessee and Ohio. And it's being exploited right now as we speak. It's actually one of the most or one of the least talked about stories in what's going on in Venezuela. And we're certainly going to be discussing that in a future episode. The Colton element is called like blue gold. And that's something that China is also very interested in, right? Yes, definitely. Uh, it's it's one of, of the, the so-called rare earths and it's used uh, to create microchips. It's, it's one of the, the, the main components. So obviously there's an interest uh, on behalf of Chinese uh, extractors to be present in, uh, in Venezuela, uh, especially, but I, I, I do not think that the China or Chinese companies will formalize their participation. And what I mean by formalize is say actually make it public precisely because of everything that's going on. They're just simply, you know, trying to stay put until there is some kind of resolution uh, in Venezuela. Regardless of whatever happens, they will deal with whoever comes up comes out on top. But I think at the moment, you will just see this very low-key participation in terms of just you know, being present there, being connected, um, in order to be able to exploit these, uh, these minerals in the future. Now, before we switch over to the economic relationship, to the political relationship, I also wanted to point out, because you pointed out uh, microchips, The usage of the smart ID cards or the smart card ID in Venezuela that is essentially inspired from China's national identity card and program. So we've talked about this a little bit on the show, this Carnet de la Patria, this fatherland card. It's an ID that basically transmits data about uh, the cardholders to computer servers. And it's linked by the regime to subsidize uh, programs that subsidize food health, and other social programs. The problem is that it's being used essentially as a form of social control and ZTE is at the heart of the program. So Parcel, if you could explain a little bit about ZTE's role in this uh, fatherland card, Carnet de la Patria, and maybe some of the parallels between the rollout of this system and that of the social credit system. Sure thing. So uh, well, as you well mentioned, the, the this fatherland card, this was uh, rolled out by Chavez. And uh, it's the project comes from a partnership with a Chinese company called ZTE. Uh, in terms of scale, obviously, it's not as big as Huawei, but they, they do have an important uh, they, they are important suppliers in the global south of telecommunications infrastructure and cell, uh, cellular phones as well. So uh, CTE it was hired by the Venezuelan government to create this card, which, yeah, as, as, as you well mentioned, is connected to a government database that basically is used to track the, the movements of, of um, not the physical movements, but what we're talking about uh, where people 
if people have access to subsidies, where do they have access to them? Actually, I don't know if you've corroborated this or if you've looked into it. There's uh, there's talk of uh, of uh, right now that if you don't have the Canela Patria, you won't be able to get vaccinated in yes. Venezuela. So that that is the extent of which it's it's basically I wouldn't say so much a, a surveillance mechanism. I say it's more of like an extortion mechanism. So they, they mostly use this card as a means to, you know, give social handouts and and get benefits from the government. So if you don't have it, you probably are going to have to pay more for gas. The pension fund of, of, of the retirees in Venezuela actually gets paid to, uh, if you have the Carnet de la Patria. If you don't have it, you, you won't get the, well, the uh, Maduro created Petro uh, cryptocurrency, uh, which... You all can, you can only have access to Petros if you have the the Canela Patria. So it's it it's it's permeated all the sectors of the social handouts of the government. So it's it's a way of yeah, basically that's extortion because um, uh, well, the, basically you have to become part of this database. You have to become part. You have to be supportive of government policies through the use of the. Uh, the card, and, and when you comp- and when you compare it to the the Chinese uh, social credit system, it's 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 totally different in that the Chinese government is very effective in its implementation of technology. As for the Venezuelan government, like probably everything else that that has to do with with the sino Venezuelan cooperation hasn't been that quite success- successful. And I'm sure that from the beginning, they were actually uh, probably that was where they were headed. But because of basically inefficiency, I think they, 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 they didn't get not even to uh, they basically used it as simply simply as a way to control the people that depend on government. Right. It becomes much more concerning as more and more people become dependent on the government for the most simple of necessities. And now with this most important example, uh, getting COVID vaccines. And that's actually something that presents a great segue into the political implications of this relationship. In the context of the COVID pandemic, China, as you know, has provided vaccines to most countries in the continent. And in the case of Venezuela, it sent medical personnel, flights with tons of medical supplies, face masks, test kits, although I think uh, the the veracity or I guess the quality of the test kits is for dispute, and other uh, personal protective equipment or PPE. So in spite of everything that we've talked about, in spite of the shortcomings from Venezuela to be able to have something to show for the loans that they've been provided by China, China seems to still provide a lifeline to the Maduro regime, economically speaking, but political as well. As you know, in 2019, Juan Guaido was sworn in as the de jure president by virtue of being president of the National Assembly. But Venezuela, at least in the guise of China, is still under the leadership of Nicolas Maduro. So talk to us a little bit about that. What exactly is China's perception right now? It's been very quiet, but at least on the international stage, it has vetoed resolutions in the United Nations calling for free and fair presidential elections. It sits alongside Venezuela and the United Nations Human Rights Council. So it seems it's quiet, but it's there. Yeah, you've described it very well. So exactly, it's... uh, there's a presence, and at least from the Venezuelan, from from Maduro's perspective, um, China remains a very important international player because it, it gives credence to his regime uh, in international forum. So, even though the relationship has cooled to the point that. I think the, the, the vaccines is, is the most telling of indicators in regards to how the relationship is right now. So if you if you look at the the Chinese official news outlet, CGTN, has a, a two-date 
a database of Chinese uh, vaccines, the Chinese the distribution of Chinese vaccines worldwide. So if you look at Latin America, it's mostly uh, highlighted except Venezuela and some countries in the in the in Central America which have uh, official relationships with Taiwan. So it's quite telling that to this date, Venezuela has not received Chinese vaccines. I really can only speculate at this point, but the, just com comparatively speaking, the, over 2 million doses of Sinovac have been distributed in Chile. Venezuela hasn't received one. Why is that? My best guess is that the Maduro regime has failed in all of the, the, the promises it has made over the last few, year, few years in terms of uh, incrementing the, the amount of oil being sent to pay uh, to repay loans, all the projects that were supposed to be finished and the lack of accountability. So there was probably some dispute at some point between both administrations, probably Venezuela ha having to, I don't know, probably make some kind of gesture uh, in order to, well, become part of the, the, the China's initiative and, and, and vaccine distribution in the region. So, uh, yes, the relationship is definitely not what it, not what it used to be. It's, it's much, much worse. And I don't think that's going to change. Basically, because Venezuela is sort of like this hot potato uh, in China's lab that uh, if it remains there, they're going to have more and more, they're going to be blamed for everything that's been going on. And that's the last thing that they want. Uh, I think that to date, they are much more aware of what the, the Venezuelan conflict represents for politics in the region, especially for, for the triangular relationship between China, the United States, and Latin America. So, yes, Venezuela is uh, uh, China, as you guys, I think you, you put it quite adequ adequately when you say it's, it's, it's like a silent partner, but not because it is, uh, you know, because it wants to openly support Maduro, but because it's part of its overall foreign policy towards the global south. If it was not Venezuela, if it were some other country, some other dictatorship uh, in the global south, they will do exactly the same uh, as what they've done with Venezuela in terms of, uh, let's say, uh, positioning itself in the or in the United Nations or vetoing calls for elections or for sanctions against Venezuela. It probably also wants its money back. Given, um, yeah. <laughs> given just how just the, the tens of billions of dollars that they've sunk into the Maduro regime that have yielded absolutely nothing in leveraging their position in Latin America, which is seeing results yield more positively in other areas in the region. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a drop in the bucket, in fairness, relative to China's trillion dollar sovereign wealth fund. But I want to shift to the role of the opposition in all of this. When all of this was really playing out back in 2019, uh, interim president Juan Guaido wrote an article for Bloomberg where he argued that China could possibly play a large role in Venezuela's economic reconstruction the day after Maduro. When that day comes, I don't know, hopefully sooner than later, but when that day does come in that scenario, um, what are your thoughts on that? What role do you think that China could play in a post-Maduro Venezuela? Well, regardless of the point of view that anyone might have on China, on its political system, or on its involvement in Venezuela, China is going to have, will play an important role in the post-Chavismo era. Basically because, well, there's a lot of loose ends to tie, and China still has interests in Venezuela, as we mentioned, in the mining sector, but 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 also in probably they, they will be interested in helping reconstruct, build from scratch uh, what's left of uh, Venezuela's oil industry. Obviously, they, they, would, they still want their, their the outstanding debt roams around $20 billion. It's the best guess, uh, informed guess, that uh, 
people who study uh, the economic relationship have, uh, have pointed out. So, yes, they will have a role to play. And uh, sincerely speaking, I think they do. They can play a positive role. Uh, China is not to blame for, for everything that's going on. They simply they, they were a contributing factor, but they are not they're not responsible for the, the huge levels of corruption that stemmed from the Sino-Venezuelan joint forum or because uh, or, or the institutional degradation of Venezuela that well you've talked a lot about that on this program. So if it, it's done in a transparent way, uh, if it's done uh, uh, through the proper institutional processes to get not uh, not funding, but uh, you know, um, to assign projects to Chinese companies in an open and competitive way, I'm sure China has a lot to offer uh, uh, Venezuela, and probably they they will participate in the whole process. That being said, if you know they they, they use the same approach and uh, talking about state to state relations and basically bypassing. Congress or Parliament or whatever, you know, the legislative branch of government, odds are the results will be exactly the same. So it's it's a challenge for any future administration how they will deal with China, especially given that, well, it's not only the outstanding debt, we really have no idea what other contracts Maduro signed with the Chinese government. So it, it will there will have to be a lot of long official talks about the current state of all these contracts, whether they were constitutional or not, uh, whether they uh, exerted some sort of influence on the political decision-making in Venezuela. So all these topics will have to be addressed by a future administration, but there's no doubt that China will be an important piece in a post-Chavismo era. And hopefully they learn this next administration that you can't act. One of the one of the analogies that I was just thinking of as you were answering the question is essentially Venezuela acted like a like a teenager who won the lottery and was given an American Express black card with no spending limit. And now they've run they've ran up a debt that they have no idea how to pay back. So that's yeah. Chavez made the party and Maduro got stuck with the bill. Yeah, it's certainly going to be a challenge for whatever administration comes after the Maduro regime. One last question I have for you, Parsifal. I want to see how the United States plays into all of this. I know that for the past couple of years, as you know as well, the United States has been engaged in a trade war with China. And right now, they're in a position where they have to respond to China's challenge in Latin America. Our hemisphere is essentially being, I don't want to say influenced, but the void of American influence is being filled rapidly by China. And the United States, we could say, is still in a in a position of sorts to contain this challenge, but the more that China is involved, especially in light of this pandemic, where a lot of these countries in Latin America are uh, strapped for cash, the easier and the quicker China will be able to respond to that call, if you will. So what kind of approach do you think the United States will and should take towards China with respect to Venezuela and Latin America under this new administration? So, yeah, there's definitely a, a challenge given the fact that the, the, US, the U.S.'s engagement with Latin America uh, has diminished uh, continuously for, for the past two decades. It's only now under the, the, the Biden administration that we see this precisely because of the China challenge that we see a refocus um, towards the region. So, but I think it's uh, the U.S. should build should build on its historical links with the region 
China is still might be a great economic partner in the sense that it presents a lot, a lot of opportunities in terms of exports, in terms of technology exchange, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, it's more of competing with China than actually imposing itself on the region, basically, you know, putting Latin American governments in a choose scenario between the United States and, and China. And I think that, that China is actually playing a very intelligent game in terms of its geopolitics in the global south. Um, if a, uh, the gov- a future government of Venezuela decides to work with Cisco for half of its 5G network, China will not say, I will not work with you because you're working with a U.S. brand. And that's the kind of rhetoric that we've seen from some more uh, from some China hogs in uh, U.S. politics. I think that's definitely the wrong approach. It would have the opposite effect. It will have there's still an important reservoir of leftist politicians in the region that will use this kind of policies basically to argue about more engagement with China. And uh, and the Chinese will simply uh, build on on that, uh, that great power politics narrative that comes from from uh, hardliners towards China inside the United States. And and they they do so regularly. You, You see this uh, you saw this throughout 2020 with the, the, the so-called vaccine diplomacy is China's main point was, look, we had uh, the pandemic, the, the first outbursts of the pandemic came from China. Well, regardless of the whole yeah, where the where the virus came from, but, but uh, they talk about, look, we needed to vaccinate our population, but we still have donated or sold X amount of vaccines to the global south in comparison to what you know western companies have been doing and they continuously point to hoard vaccination uh, so vaccination hoarding sorry um and that's i think they've become more intelligent in how to frame their pitch their 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 public policy towards uh the developing world so um uh, the us has to um, actually, it's good that you mentioned it just happened just a few uh, a few days ago. The U.S. Senate of the Foreign Relations Committee was proposing a uh, multi-million dollar funding, um, uh, a funding program for Latin America, particularly to counter the negative impact, quote unquote, of the Belt and Road Project. So this is perceived by a lot of local politicians. I mean, local, I mean, Latin American, as a the, the usual paternalistic view from the United States as, you know, being the one that knows what's best for the region. And actually, in the, the, the committee, they, they not only mentioned the negative impact of the Belt and Road Project, but they also said that they will only, uh, they will authorize, I think it was uh, $300, uh, $300 million dollars between 2022 to 2026 to counter Chinese influence. Hey, well, actually, the, not, the name of the fund is Counter Chinese Influence Fund, and it's going to be $300 million. But they, it would only be accessible to countries that uh, do not ex- further accept Chinese loans. So I think that this is the, the worst approach possible you can actually use. You have to compete with the Chinese instead of making... Uh, governments choose between one country or the other because uh, that will definitely backfire down the line and will actually make uh, or push many many governments towards China in, instead of you know bringing them into the fold. Yeah, I'm reading the bill right now, or I'm not reading all of it, of course, because it's hundreds of pages, but I'm reading the article that describes some of the, I guess, the key points of this bill. And if it does pass, I think on the surface, it's great that this administration is prioritizing countering China's rising global authoritarianism. But at the same time, I think that you are right. There are areas in which it can backfire if the approach is less competition and more providing an ultimatum to these countries, especially as they swing ideologically like a pendulum. I mean, you're saying right 
You're seeing right now in Peru, we have no idea what we can what could happen. It could either shift hard left or hard right. In Ecuador, we just saw that there was an election that saw the right wing party win the election, uh, Guillermo Lasso. We, we're not sure what's going to happen in Brazil next year with uh, Lula da Silva back in the picture. So Brazil might swing from the right back to the left. It's the, the lack of uh, predictability makes it interesting, but also complicated. So that's why it's important for institutions like yours to be able to make these reports available to lawmakers in the region and in America, because Lord knows that America needs to get with the times on Latin America. It is criminally underprioritized. So um, how can our listeners connect with you online if they want to follow your work on relations between China and Venezuela and the Latin American region at large? Uh, sure. So, well, first, uh, obvious uh, source is our, our webpage, which is fundacionandresbello.org. Um, there you will have both Spanish sources, uh, Spanish content and English content, actually some Chinese content as well, if there are some Chinese speakers out there. And uh, yeah, well, you can follow us on Twitter as well. And uh uh, one thing I just forgot, we're, we're launching this week, actually, our, our podcast on China-Latin America relations. It's called the Silicon Coffee Podcast. And uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about the Latin American perspectives on China's relationship with the region. So we'll try, it will be a bilingual podcast, so we'll have um, episodes in Spanish and episodes in English. And obviously, well, aside from talking about China-Venezuela relations, we will also be talking a lot about the U.S.'s role in this triangular relationship. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I'm going to be posting those links on the episode description as always. And I'm looking forward to that podcast. It seems sounds very interesting and there's going to certainly be a lot of material to run through. So with that, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today, Parsifal. Hopefully we can have you back for another China discussion as the situation continues to to unfold because it's it's very fascinating and it really does merit further discussion. Oh, thank you, Rafael. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, yeah, well, best of, luck, best of luck to you too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to the story of Venezuela as much as we enjoyed sharing it. Make sure you subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to listen to other episodes and follow us on all social media platforms for more engaging content. Don't forget to share the podcast with friends, family, or anyone abroad. Reach out to us with any suggestions for future episodes at stateofvenezuela at gmail.com or just to say hello. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, we'll see you in the next one.